You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Jace Mattinson, and you are listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. I used to think a million dollars was a lot of money. And let's be real. It is. I'd always told myself that when I reached this milestone, I would be set. But the party was short-lived. No balloons, no blowout parties, just the realization that a million dollars was an amazing start, but not the big prize I had hoped for. There was still so much more work to be done. Yet reaching this landmark signified that I had the tools and the skills to guide my own economic fortunes. A million is just a number, after all, but it has come to mean so much more. Yesterday, for sure. But what about in 2022? Are we still interested in the secret lives of millionaires? The answer, of course, is yes. Yes, we are. Jace Mattinson developed an interest in personal finance and building wealth at a very young age. Most of this was inspired by his parents' journey to learn and the hundreds of books his parents purchased trying to figure out their own finances. This led him to start several ventures, including but not limited to selling candy and snow cones, landscaping and mowing lawns, baling hay, and a paper route. Jace graduated in accounting from Brigham Young University and started his career with a big five accounting firm. He's an active CPA, current CFO, and host of the popular Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Jace Mattinson, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Let me start with a touchy question. Are you currently a millionaire? (laughs) That's a good question. I am, even despite all this market fluctuation. So I hope that I always will be at this point. I was about to say a millionaire yesterday, but not tomorrow. That's the scary thing when the stock market does what it does. Take me back to when you started the podcast. Were you a millionaire then or did the transition take place while you were on air? You know, it's a good question. And I, I think I was probably close. It's hard. Part of it, you know, I had some some business equity at that point that would have tipped the needle one way or the other. So definitely not a liquid millionaire as part of the definition between, you know, cash and, you know, liquid stock market investments and whatnot. I had some real estate as well. But, but, you know, I look back, I never really marked that equity, you know, to a million dollars at that point. So it was probably within the first year or two after the podcast that I became a liquid millionaire. And what do you think has been the hardest part of your journey? A lot of people say the first $100,000 is like the hardest work. And once you hit that level, things tend to multiply. What was it for you? I would agree with that. Just getting some traction at first. You know, I 
I started much like a lot of people did. I've worked all sorts of jobs, had all sorts of businesses as a kid. You know, I graduated luckily debt free. My parents helped a little bit, but I worked all through college. So I graduated with like 13 grand in the bank and set off to go work big four out in the Bay Area and then in, in Dallas. And, you know, those first couple of years, it's like, man, I feel like all the money I'm making is going to like rent food and just kind of basic <laughs> living expense. I'm like, when am I going to really start to get ahead and get married? And I start spending a lot of money and bought a condo, you know, bought a ring and obviously paid for a lot of that in cash, not the condo, but everything else. And, you know, I had to buy a new car. At one point I was carless. I was just riding my bike back and from, you know, to and from work and taking public transportation because my car crapped out on me. And there's a lot of, you know, in those early days, I look back, I'm like, gosh, man, I don't, there, there are times where I probably never thought I was going to get traction, you know, in my early, early to mid twenties. And then all of a sudden, you know, keeping and sticking with that, the, the plan that I put in place, it started to kind of take some, some, some effect, but I would agree that first hundred, of savings and, you know, money that you don't need that you can let work for you was, was definitely tough. You ever get jealous of your guests on the podcast? Because obviously by the time you got to the podcast, you were doing better. You'd probably pass the hundred thousand point as we were talking about a moment ago, but you ever kind of listen to their stories and you're like, man, you know, I wish I was at that point. You know, I, I think I've learned to gain comfort in my journey. There's definitely, there's definitely a few on the podcast that we've had that, you know, have some significant levels of wealth that, you know, at some point I, I may have goals to, to get to in, in some cases, but being able to learn from them is just a, a blessing in and of itself. You know, I would have never had access or had conversations with some of these people that, that I do had I not had the podcast and that platform to, to be able to have these conversations. So to some degree, I'm just real appreciative that I'm able to to talk to, you know, these people and learn from them, you know, more so than, you know, trying to be like them or, and, and a lot of them have really helped shape my personal investment, you know, journey and thesis. So I'm, I'm very appreciative of that because I don't, I don't know that I would have got there as quickly without that. I'm interested specifically, tell me some tactical things that you probably changed because you're doing this podcast. Yeah. So my risk tolerance and risk you know, a version definitely has shifted and changed as part of the podcast and, and probably as I've gotten a little bit more money and wealth. But, you know, I grew up in a pretty risk adverse household and it was, hey, we put money into the the 401k and the Roth IRA and we'll pay, pay off our house as fast as possible type thing. And my parents have done very well in that regard, but in terms of like ever taking any type of risk with business or with real estate or rentals or any of that kind of stuff, that was just never even, you know, a possibility. It was more of kind of that Dave Ramsey mindset and not that I'm completely frivolous or, you know, reckless now, but my, my risk tolerance has drastically shifted where I look at calculated risks as opportunities more so than you know, am I going to really bet the farm on this and completely collapse? And to some degree, like I'm willing to make some of those bets to get some of the things that I want, knowing that if I don't make those bets, that I probably won't get what I want. Interesting. I mean, as you've gone through this process of interviewing hundreds and hundreds of millionaires, were you surprised that maybe some of the risk aversion a lot of us have that maybe the millionaires don't have that they're much more willing to jump in and, and put more money on the line. 
Yeah, there's still quite a few that I think are are in that mindset. But what I will say is, and, and what I've realized, you know, for example, paying off a home early, like unless they're over 50, we don't have a lot of millionaires that take that approach. You know, that's not a you know so-called debt in their eyes that's a bad debt or that it's a debt that needs to be addressed, you know, on such a quick, you know, aggressive level. And so, and then on top of that, the ones that are typically have higher levels of net worth have taken significant risks, whether it's in their career or business or making career changes or, you know, moving across the country or whatever it might have been. Sometimes it was not necessarily for the money, so to speak, but just being able to learn from the mindset and the thinking and the process that they go through to make some of those decisions. And like, I've borrowed a ton of that for sure. We've talked a little bit about how you've changed over the process of making this podcast. It's been four or five years now. Do you think the millionaires have changed? Are you seeing people acting and doing things differently than they did a bunch of years ago? You know, not on a not on a large scale. I will say there there's been a couple interesting shifts. One, I think that the rise of real estate investments over the past five years. You know, we had the 08 crisis, right? And after that, to some degree, you know, real estate was cheap pretty much everywhere you bought it. And so, a lot of people, I think, bigger pockets, I think, digital, you know, media and everything gave gave way for a lot of that to you know, the education level to increase that then led to more people being interested that led to, you know, big wall street firms getting interested. I mean, you got companies like invitation homes out there now that own, you know, thousands of rentals that just wasn't as common, uh, especially when we started the podcast, I think more and more people are like, Oh yeah, everybody's got a, not everybody, but a lot of them have a rental or two or three. Uh, in some cases, some of them are just landlords and they don't have any money in the market. And that, and typically we still see that where it's, one side or the other, more people are more comfortable with, you know, hey, I'm just going to invest in the market or I'm going to go all in on real estate. But we do have, you know, quite a few that are blended as well. The other thing is the rise of crypto. You know, we've yeah. seen a lot of yeah. a lot of people put money into cryptos and, you know, meme stocks and all sorts of stuff. And some of it's just been a game to some degree. But the other thing is, you know, people are actually legitimately putting crypto as part of their portfolio much like you would have maybe seen a long time ago that people were doing with you know gold or silver. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting point because we think of crypto or the meme stocks as get rich quick schemes. But what you're telling us is the millionaires are doing it too, right? So these are people of means who are still looking at the risk profile and thinking there's something there for them. Yeah, and they don't put a ton of money in these things. I mean, we we did have one guest that was essentially a crypto millionaire, but for the most part, it's it's hey, let's put you know, let's allocate, you know, three to 5% or less to these different investments. And maybe it's, Hey, I just want to hedge my risk and see what happens because you know, who knows what the dollar is really worth. And and part of it is, Hey, if this does give me a decent return, I mean, we watched, you know, in the early days of, of Bitcoin, for example, I mean, if you would have just put a little bit of money, I mean, that thing would have been, you know, went up mm-hmm. to 50, 60,000 60, a coin and, you know, it's dropped since then, but it's one of those things that I think people are recognizing that, hey, there are some other alternatives out there and maybe I need to have a little bit of exposure and see what happens. What about digital entrepreneurship? You mentioned that a little, and obviously over the years, we've seen digital entrepreneurship just pretty much take off. Are you seeing many millionaires who are making their money that way? Not as many 
as I would think, we do have a few, we do have some that have, you know, maybe started a side hustle and it's turned it into something. And so they quit their job, especially during, you know, the pandemic days, which I guess technically we're still maybe in the pandemic, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's kind of hard to tell, right? <laughs> kind of confusing, isn't Canada it? And I, was, I was still wearing a mask on a plane, which it caught me off guard because I hadn't worn a mask on a plane in a long time. I forgot that people still wear masks on planes in other places, but at any rate, uh, we have seen a, a, an increase in an uptick, even if it's not a full-time deal, at least in a side hustle way. I mean, there's so many ways that, to make money online now. And there's so many, you know, the sharing economy, so to speak, that, I mean, I, I'd be hard pressed to find a millionaire that's been on our show that didn't do something, you know, addition to their day job for the most part. I mean, somebody, you know, whether it was when they were younger Maybe not. They're not doing it now, but I mean, we—I can't tell you. We probably had a dozen or so that have you know, driven for Uber or DoorDash, or you know, done all sorts of things on on all the different websites that that are available out there that they might have a skill skill set in and charge an extra hundred bucks an hour to do. And a lot of them supplemented their income, you know, at one point or another to to get where they are. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned this side hustle thing. And what it reminds me is the people who make it to million dollars usually are pretty driven. This is a hustle culture. You know, in the financial independence retire early community, although it's more on the outs, we still about this talk about this ability to retire. How many of these millionaires are, are you know, folding it up and saying, I'm not going to work anymore. I'm just going to kind of hang out and enjoy my wealth. Yeah, we've had quite a few that I would say, you know, quote unquote fired. A majority of those are over 50 or over 60. And we've tried to get more of those on the show, to be honest, so that we can kind of have a perspective of somebody who's essentially on the other side of the fence and, in, in, you know, figuratively speaking. But we have had a lot that have retired early. And I wouldn't say they've completely retired. I think a lot of their efforts have just shifted. You know, it's not they're not going to just hang out on the beach and that's it. And they won't do anything ever again. Like I, you know, like we just mentioned before, I mean, the internet has allowed for almost anybody with a computer with a level of a skill to be able to, you know, provide and drive value and make some money. And so we've seen a lot quit their traditional day jobs and then go and work, you know, in, in a capacity that fulfills them the most similar to kind of the stuff you've done, to be honest you know, and you retire from a different career and kind of move on to something else or shift your hours such that it's more fulfilling. It's a little bit better, you know, work-life balance, to, you know, so to speak. And, and we have seen a major shift in that. Do you think these millionaires are thinking about drawdown strategies? I remember it was really epiphany because I had spent so much time thinking about accumulation that I had never really put the time and effort into thinking about drawdown. And now as I got closer, I kind of like this idea of doing little things to make money so you don't have to draw down. I mean, do you think most of millionaires are like me that they're trying to avoid drawdown or are they kind of using it to to slow down and, and not necessarily make more money? It's a great question and a great topic and something that has come up frequently more recently than not. One part of the drawdown and drawdown issue is those that have you know been super accumulators and have looming RMDs that you know when they get their seventies. So that's a big thing, right? And and do you start putting together a ladder? And if you do, at what point? And are you willing to pay some of those tax bills at a younger age to be able to you know put in place that ladder and stuff? And that is a 
That is a major tie. I think personally, that's a topic that's not getting enough media attention. I think it's going to get more as more and more people kind of fall into that boat. If you look at the history of Roths, you know, I think the top end of that baby boomer generation is just the ones that if they were super accumulators are just kind of getting to that point, but you're going to see it more and more as Roths got more popular in the, the late nineties and early two thousands where, you know, people may have, may or may not have had that shift. I mean, my parents are in that boat, right? My dad barely, you know, didn't really get a Roth started until quite some time after. And, you know, I sit down with him. I'm like, dude, like, I mean, you're going to put yourself in a tax bracket at some point, you know, if you live long enough into your late, you know, mid seventies, eighties that you never experienced your whole life and it's going to be forced, you know, and the tax bracket and rates may even be higher and it may even have a worse outlook. And so, I think drawdown strategies are top of mind. I think people are trying to resist, you know, the drawdown as much as possible and and supplementing their income in various ways to to do so, because there is a lot of unknown about how does a market perform and can this market perform the way that it traditionally has for the next 30 years that I need it to. We obviously are in the middle of a, a major pullback right now. I think that's caused a lot of people to rethink like, oh, wow, this thing doesn't go up and up and up and up forever. Like we felt like it was going to, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a horrible realization, isn't it? When you realize that the market just doesn't, doesn't complete, completely go up all the time. You know, just one other point on the drawdown strategy. Yeah. You can find yourself in a very high tax bracket when you hit, you know, your early seventies, when you have to take out your acquired minimum distributions. And so a lot of people, especially these millionaires and high net worth individuals are looking at that time between right 59 and a half and whatever it is, 71, 72, where they go from being able to start drawing on the retirement accounts, but yet aren't required to take distribution. So the question is, when are you going to take the tax hit and how? Something that a lot of people don't start thinking about until they have millions in the bank, which is exactly who you're interviewing. Let's talk about the pandemic. Do you think the pandemic changed attitudes? I mean, this was a major assault on our daily lives. Do you think millionaires are thinking any differently after going through this arduous deal of quarantining and worrying about the virus? I think the things that a lot of people have said were the most important to them in terms of travel are still important. I think the way of doing that may be different. And I think in some cases, people were like, oh, yeah, I want to go you know, do this XYZ trip over in this country. That may still be the case, but they're also saying, you know what? There's a lot of places domestically, too, that I can get to that don't have restrictions that, hey, I may shift some of my travel behavior and, and go explore some of these places that are, are closer. But I think that things are, are, have been brought to the forefront of our minds, knowing that, man, how easy was that for those things to get taken away real quickly from a pandemic? Like, I mean, Japan's still somewhat closed right now, right? So they've been shut down for two and a half years. That's been a country personally on my list that I've wanted to go to. And I'm like, man, if something like this happens again, you're closed. It's like your whole schedule gets, you know, interrupted. And then, you know, going back to some things that we've discussed re- very recently on the podcast with, with various guests that, and, and, and really, um, you know, there's a, there's a few books out there. Die with zero is one of them that talk yeah. about this. Like you can, some of these experiences, you can only have at certain points in your life. You know, you might be able to go visit that place again, but the experience that you have in your twenties versus maybe your thirties or forties and fifties, it's going to be completely different. 
And so missing out on some of those things, like, yeah, people don't want to do that. You know, so those things are becoming more and more important. I think people have adjusted their lifestyle such that, hey, you know what? These things are are really important to me. I don't really want to be commuting five days a week to an office. I want to work from home two, three days a week. So I'm going to look for a place that's going to accommodate that. I think I ask you this every year, and yet I'm still always amazed by the answer. We're talking about the pandemic and how it made people think about how do they use, utilize their money to do those things they want to do, maybe in the seasons of their life when they can do those things. It still comes back to the basic question. Do you think millionaires on average are more happy than non-millionaires? Is this money doing what it's supposed to do for them? That's <laughs> always a good question. And, and, and I do think there is a level of happiness that comes with a certain level of wealth. And that could vary for each individual. I think the reason that some of that happiness comes is because they have different stress over, you know, there's a different stress level of being able to make, you know, mortgage payment monthly versus trying to sit there and figure out how's best to spend our money, given that we're going to be able to save half of our income this month. Right. So there is a base level of happiness, I think, that comes with with the stress relief of of not living paycheck to paycheck. But there's the sh- the, the stress shifts, right? In some cases, and trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I allocate resources for my children? And like, well, do I make my children go through some of the same stuff I went through when I'm trying to earn money to alleviate some of those pains that I had as a kid? And how do I kind of navigate all of that in society and you know, there is a base level happiness. You know, I think the the, the report on the income has been $75,000. You know, I think that from, from the millionaires that we, we interview, I, I wouldn't say any of them are disgruntled or unhappy. You know, they're, they're very happy. They're very content, but I think a lot of that happiness does come with, you know, some of that contentment and being able to, to kind of, you know, relatively navigate that, Hey, you know, the fruits of my merits are here. I have some of this money and it affords me to do some different things or think differently or sleep differently, but I still got to, you know, be prudent with those resources. It's not going to, you know, it may not last forever if I get reckless with it. We are talking to Jace Mattinson, who developed an interest in personal finance and building wealth at a very young age. Most of this was inspired by his parents' journey to learn and the hundreds of books his parents purchased trying to figure out their own finances. And we are discussing the secrets of millionaires unveiled. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later... We'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including calorie smart, keto, protein plus, or vegan and veggie. 
Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, everybody. I am so excited to let you know that I will be in San Diego Thursday, October 6th. And from 4 to 7 p.m., we're going to have a book launch event at BJ's Restaurant and Brew House. That is in San Diego, California. You can sign up for this event. It's a book launch party, but all Earn and investors are welcome to come, whether you've read the book or not. Of course, there will be books to be purchased, and I'd be happy to sign them for you there. Also, if you happen to be attending the Camp Phi event, which is going to be Camp Phi Southwest, that's October 7th through 10th in Julian, California, which is right down the way from San Diego. I love to see all of you. Check us out. Go to earnandinvest.com slash San Diego. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash San Diego to sign up to hang out with me at BJ's for our book launch event. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Jace Mattinson, who graduated in accounting from Brigham Young University and started his career with a big five accounting firm. He's an active CPA, current CFO, and host of the popular Millionaires Unveiled podcast. So let's get down to some of the specifics of what you've learned by interviewing hundreds and hundreds of millionaires. Here's the big question, right? There are undoubtedly some people who are listening to this who are either in debt or starting at zero what is the quickest and easiest way to go from zero to a million dollars? The quickest way is probably to get married or <laughs> get a lucky lottery ticket, right? <laughs> but no, I think to, to, to put in perspective for the majority of people, you know, you got to develop a plan to, to be able to get there and a plan that you can execute. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you there's one plan or another that's going to work for you. I think that personal finance is very personal. Risk tolerance for everybody is very different. And some of that you really need to navigate and figure out for yourself. In some cases, maybe it's going to be starting a business. In other cases, maybe it's going to be working you know, in a lucrative career, a W-2 that you can save quite a bit of your income. Some cases, maybe it's changing careers and you know, navigating that whole thing and investing in real estate or whatever it might be. There's a million, there's nothing that I've learned more from doing this podcast that there are so many different ways to be successful and make money. There's just not one cookie cutter answer. You know, there's definitely frameworks that, that, you know, I think work for the most part, given the, the, the data that we have, but in terms of how you do it, what you do for a living, there's, there are so many options. So if we want to become millionaires, we should act like millionaires, right? This idea of fake it till you make it. Is there one investment class or asset allocation that pretty much you see across most of the millionaires that you've interviewed? Yeah, I'd say most fall into kind of one of three categories and in some cases all three, but one is, hey, I'm going to invest in tax advantaged accounts in the markets and I'm going to put it in index funds for the most part. 
I would say very few of our millionaires play, you know, stock picking. And, and if they do, it's with a very, very small percentage of their portfolio. The other category is, is real estate. There's a lot of millionaires that invest in, in single family rentals and small multifamily, multifamily rentals. And then there's, you know, the smaller portion that invest in business or have business ownership. They're typically, you know, higher, quote unquote, higher risk and definitely in some cases, you know, on the higher net worth, you know, spectrum of things. But those three pillars or, you know, options are really where I would say 99% of our millionaires fall. Like I mentioned, we did have the one that, you know, was a crypto millionaire. There's always somebody that has made some, you know, money in some outsized way that doesn't fit into those categories. But for the most part, it's it's plugging away year after year, generating that compounded interest effect that that hockey stick that, you know, all of us are accustomed to learning about, but until you actually experience yourself, it's hard to understand how that really, really works. I want to drill down on real estate. And I know we talked about it a little before, but are you really seeing a rise in the allocation that goes to real estate? As you look across your millionaires, are you seeing, especially in the last few years, that it's becoming more and more popular as a place to park some of your money? I don't know that I would say it's becoming more popular that people are, you know, as of recently, as real estate prices have risen, but a lot of people who put money in real estate, you know, over the last decade have seen those, op- those portfolio values obviously, you know, rise significantly. So in some cases where somebody bought a house or rental, you know, that house may have doubled or tripled in value since they bought it in the last decade. And so the allocation of, of where their net worth is now, good chunk of it's in real estate in that equity. And in some cases we've had several sell some too, you know, and now they've got a big chunk of cash or, you know, refinanced and put a bunch of cash in the bank and, you know, are doing something else with it. Not so much, hey, I'm just getting into real estate now. I think prices are very high. There's not as many that have said, oh, I just barely started in real estate this year, uh, so to speak. You bring up an interesting point. With real estate prices being high right now, with our thoughts about the market over the next decade that returns may not be what they've been, that leaves another newer asset allocation. We're talking alternatives. You mentioned the crypto millionaire, but there are tons of alternatives out there. There's syndications, there's people buying into farmland, there's people who've securitized artwork. I mean, the number of alternatives is exploding. Tell me about what you're seeing with your millionaires. Are they getting a little more interested or aggressive when it comes to alternatives that aren't your basic real estate or equities? Yeah, I'd say... I've been surprised how many have put some sort of alternative in their portfolio, but as I mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a small percentage of the portfolio. So, you know, typically less than 5%, but you mentioned art, like we had, we've had several that have had art, had a couple of people that have had, you know, investments in baseball cards and basketball cards and, and things like that. So I do see a, an uptick in it, but it hasn't become such a large portion of anyone's portfolio that I'm, you know, would be willing to say, hey, this is a completely new trend of, you know, people, millionaires investing in these alternative assets. Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of collectives, collectibles. Obviously, they have not done well over the decades, but I still have my collection of baseball cards all wrapped up in plastic and ready to go in case the market ever really <laughs> takes off. Like it did when I was a kid, when these things were worth a lot. You know, it's an interesting thing. One thing I've noticed is as we start worrying about the markets and what's going to happen, 
there's the fear, especially in people who have high net worths, that they're going to lose it all. I mean, when we're talking about philosophy, we talk about loss aversion. You've been interviewing millionaires now for years. Do they worry a lot about losing what they have as opposed to gaining more? Is there a lot of fear that, you know, the market's going to change? Things are going to happen with my what I own, my real estate, et cetera. And all of a sudden, I'm going to be poor again. I think that's always a concern. I think that's why a lot of you know people, when they get to even their number that discloses their number, they still continue to work. Is there's still a fear of like, well, what happens if the market turns, or what happens when things get you know twice as expensive, or what happens when my healthcare is you know so expensive that I, I never you know modeled for back in the day? And the earlier you retire the more of those question marks and kind of probabilities, you know, really need to be thought through because you have 30, 40, you know, maybe in some cases, 50 years of, of fluidity of trying to figure out like, okay, is this going to last me forever? And if it doesn't, am I able to enter the workforce again, if I quit now and can I find other means to make a living, you know, because, those are all considerations that that we all kind of go through, especially if you're going to consider retiring early. But you know, overall, I think that there there are several things to consider with that. You know, and we'll see how this the, the pullback has been interesting. As I've seen several who were, you know, I thought I was going to kind of retire in two years. I think I might push that out to four or five. Now. Yeah, yeah, right. So you've now been doing this for a number of years, and I'm wondering your own personal interest and that of your audience, you know, why are we so mesmerized by millionaires? And do you think it's changed over the years? I think the reason we're mesmerized is because, you know, a million dollars is still a lot of money. We've we've discussed this several times. I mean, it still takes a, a significant, you know, it's not like people graduate and have, you know, six figure salaries on an average basis. It's, you know, we haven't gotten to that point in this country and things are expensive. So being able to save and accumulate that is still, you know, it, it still takes some time and it still takes some effort. And I, I think from a wealth building standpoint, you know, we, we, we kind of have this baked into our heads that, Hey, you graduate high school, maybe you go to a trade school or you start working or you go to college or whatever, what have you, you work up in a career, maybe you start a business along the way, you put some investments. And at some point you have this, you know, sunshine day where you ride off into the sunset. And, you know, typically it's been in your sixties and you basically get to realize all the benefits of working for those, you know, 40 years or whatever, you know, 40, 50 years and have this, you know, juicy retirement and do all these things in retirement that maybe you didn't do when you were younger, <laughs> you know, that's obviously shifted. I think a lot of people are just saying, I'm not going to wait till I'm 65 to do these things. And maybe if I do have to work a year or two longer, that's fine. But I think people have also found a lot more joy in some of the things they're doing with work than maybe they did before. And the digital age has, has allowed for a lot of that. And so people are able to contribute instead of, you know, going to this, you know, nine to five, so to speak, that they didn't really like or enjoy for 40 years to be able to have that sunset retirement. And so, yeah, we're still attracted to learning about, you know, millionaires and wealth. Most people in this country are first generation. I think that'll be the case for a very, very long time, maybe forever. And so all of us are in in the boat that we're going to do it and make it on our own. And even those that do inherit some, I mean, it is, it is still interesting to talk to them and see like how they think about it because 
they may have a totally different set of issues and in, in mindset versus those who have had to, you know, kind of climb from zero or, you know, negative. Do you think the demographic is changing? I mean, if you asked me 10 years ago, I'd say the easiest way to be a millionaire is to be born to a millionaire, not necessarily just because you inherit it, but there's something about mindset. There's something about our class system in the United States. Do you think that's still true or is the demographic changing? I do think there is some truth to that. I mean, you grow up in a, in a more well-off household. You probably have access to different education systems, different people, uh, you know, the connections and the people you meet are going to drastically influence your ability to get the places and the things that, you know, that you need to go. But I do think that the digital age and so many programs that we have now have given opportunities, especially those that may be less fortunate, you know, through scholarship programs or, you know, different, different things that exist throughout our country to help them. And so I do think, you know, those that maybe were, you know, 30 years ago in a scenario, it was like this, the ad, the, the odds are so stacked against them that the probability is, you know, less than 5%. I think that's moved. I think that that probability is, has increased for those people. If you work hard, you have access to some of these things, there's still going to be situations where maybe that's not true, but you know, those people that also, you know, there's always the the phrase, the rice patties, the rice patties in three generations. I mean, the, the ones that inherit typically statistically have not been very well at being able to continue to grow it and accumulate. It typically goes through and spend it all. So the next one's got to start from zero again. I love that. From rice patties to rice patties, I always heard from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, right? But the point is you yep. go from working class to wealthy back to working class within three generations as wealth is dissipated you know, the United States has changed, but we've always thought as the United States has a country of promise where anyone can make it. You've interviewed tons of millionaires. Do you think anyone today can become a millionaire? Is there things holding us back or do you think this is a wide open field? 100%. I think in this country, anybody can make it. I think the timeline varies. Obviously, the circumstances that you grew up with, or you know, the cards that you may have been dealt with, they're going to play into that. But it is amazing. I mean, we have so many immigrants on our podcast. Some that have started businesses, some that have just worked W twos, some that even worked and didn't even get an education in this country and worked up in you know various fields and gained knowledge and being able to to get there. The habits that get people there, are obviously, living on less than they're going to make. And, and being able to stock away and stockpile some. And so you got to get to a point where you can break that cycle, maybe living paycheck to paycheck that I feel like pretty much everybody in this country goes through at one point or another. I mean, I went through, I'm sure you went through it, going through med school and college and all those kinds of things. And you've got to get to a point where you get past that. But 100% think anybody can become a millionaire in this country. So if anyone can become a millionaire, I'm I'm really interested by the immigrant story too, right? Because there are a lot of people who come to the U.S. with very little. What do you think gets more in the way or what's more helpful? Is this a knowledge issue or a mindset issue? Is it that people who make it to millionaire status have a select knowledge that they've come across, which then gets them there? Or is it more that it's the mindset and they figure out how to learn what they need to know? I think that there's a little bit of both, right? In some cases with the knowledge, you know, you you take, for example, you know, your profession as a doctor, you gained a specialized set of, of knowledge, you know, skills and knowledge to be able to perform something that then paid you 
a very handsome relatively speaking amount of money to be able to do. And in some cases, you know, we have these professions across our our country that are more specialized skill set. They take longer to develop. In a lot of cases, there's, you know, school debt and and a lot of schooling involved. And so there's some knowledge that for, you know, people that earn a lot of money in some cases that they need to get that. I think that's the case with almost any business, any industry, there's a specialized knowledge set for for those people that you know are typically making the most money in that industry. In terms of being, you know, having the mindset to do so too, I think that's a huge part of it as well, regardless of of knowledge. Being able to one think you're going to get there, be able to put a plan in action to be able to get there and and execute that plan. That's a totally different discussion than having a specialized knowledge skill set. But I think there's twofold of, of having that mindset and knowledge. You know, I love that answer because I think that's totally true, right? We use our knowledge to get ahead, but then it's mindset and specifically pivoting if things aren't working. Let's talk about you, your life and pivoting. And this podcast, you and Clark Sheffield, your partner, have been interviewing people for years. Recently, you announced that Clark will be stepping down from the podcast. Tell us about this transition. Yeah, Clark is uh, going on to pursue another career path at this point, more so than you know, accounting and CFO and finance and everything else he'd kind of done in the past. And so, podcast is going to live on. I'm going to continue it, and you know, we're at kind of an inflection point, I think, in the history of it. I, you know, this is a major passion of mine, and more so, you know, now it is a legit business. But even before, it was more of a passion project that turned into a business. And you know, I look at the podcast and some of this and the data to somewhat to as, as a little bit of a legacy, you know, that I can contribute to society of putting some of these things to, together. Cause in a lot of cases there's been, you know, there's, there's been some people in the past that have done a really good job with this. And there's also a lot of people I think in our space that have pushed an agenda one way or the other. And, you know, one of the things we really want to do with this is, Hey, look, let's go talk to all these people. Let's get their stories. Let's get their allocations. There's no agenda. I don't have any agenda. You know, like I just want to tell the stories, provide the platform to do so. And then you can do and anybody can do with what with it what they want. And obviously, I'm happy to, you know, at some point here to kind of publish the statistics and the trends. And we will, and you know, at some point I think you know, we'll have a book and a course to kind of go through a lot of this stuff. But you know, that'll be more so of an education. And then at that point, you need to go make some decisions. I'm not going to say, hey, this is how you do it, A, B, C, D. Because there are so many different ways to do it. And I have no dog in the fight to, to push that agenda. So the podcast will live on. I'm you know, considering bringing in a, a, a different host at this point. I've got a few months, you know, more or less to, to make that decision in my, in my mind. And so that's, that's kind of where we're at. Well, Jason Madison, I wanted to thank you for coming on Earn It and Invest today. If we want to learn how to be millionaires, we have to learn from millionaires And over the last bunch of years, that's exactly what you and Clark have done. Week after week, you've delved into the stories, the asset allocations, and the secrets of Millionaires Unveiled, and we are all the better for it. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life, and specifically, if we want to know more, where can we find you? So first and foremost, what's coming up for Jace Mattinson? 
Yeah, obviously got got a lot of things in the in the pipeline of the podcast. Real excited for those. Some of those probably won't really take effect, but you know, towards the end of end of the year, beginning of the year. But things I've got to work on, especially with Clark and I kind of going different directions here with that. So really excited for that. Real excited for just the fall season in general. I got a lot of stuff going on business-wise and family-wise and you know, my kids are growing up and that's that's fun to to be involved in their lives and watch them experience things in, in a lot of cases for the first time and you know we're i'm on millionairesinveil.com you can email me millionairesinveil at gmail.com uh, all over you know different social sites when i'm pretty easy to get a hold of uh, if, if anybody's interested this has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Jason Mattinson from The Millionaires Unveiled. That's a wrap. All right, I'm going to keep it going just for a minute or two as we chat. As the yeah. after show, really cool, man. I mean, the stories continue to engage. You know, it's not like you can tell one, you can tell a hundred, but the truth of the matter is, I think every story always feels slightly different as people tell how they got where they're going. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to thank you for putting that out there. I mean, you guys were one of the first podcasts I was on as a guest years and years ago. Yeah. Um, and I just over the years, sure, we, I, we need to do an update, which we will. I know yeah, here and, in a few months. Yeah. And of course, I'd love to get a chance to talk about my book, too, uh, which I hope yeah. I think I've sent you a digital copy. Um, so I'd love to do both of those at once. But For I sure. think we still are mesmerized by people's stories. And, and I don't think that's ever going away. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, there, there's a personal connection. And the more I've done this, the more I've found that people really like to connect and resonate with people that they have things in common with. And so, I mean, every week we get emails like, Hey, can you connect with that person? Like, you know, I am in that profession or I thought about going that route or that's how I deal with my family with these things. Like I want to talk to that person and get to know them better. And, you know, all that with the way people do things nowadays, you know, will always kind of be, be the case. I think there'll always be opportunities to connect with people that way. When was the last time someone came up something with something in an interview, answered a question, and knocked you off your seat? And you're like, ooh, I didn't see that one coming, or I'd never heard that one before. Does that still happen occasionally? You know, it's funny. We, I just released the episode today, actually, with a, with a gentleman. He's an immigrant. He had a paid-for house, and then he decided, you know, been Dave Ramsey route, and then bought another house and decided to take a mortgage out on it and completely reversed course as his mindset related to having a mortgage and stuff. And like, you just don't see that very often, yeah. you know, especially with like, Hey, I'm going to go and relever this after I paid it off. <laughs> oh, so he kept a house and relevered. He took money out of the house. He owned already all out. No, he saying. sold the one he was, that he had Got paid it. off but then and took then, a huge but mortgage. Yeah. Took a big mortgage out on the next one and then pocketed a bunch of the rest and put it in bet. Like instead of just taking the one cash, you know, from one house and move it into the next, like he just took a mortgage out <laughs> after yeah. being mortgage free for a while. It's funny um, how many people start at Dave Ramsey with that very conservative Dave Ramsey look at things. Yeah. But as you get a little more sophisticated, you realize, hmm, maybe it ain't so bad to have a mortgage and leverage a little bit of that cash and, and do yep. something. And so yeah. I was in that boat for sure. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right, man. Well, thank you for coming Appreciate on and doing it. this. You care about your money. 
Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 